Thank you, Lord. Lord, we could sing about that cross every single Sunday, and it would never get old. It's new every Sunday. It's new every day. Because, Lord, we know and we understand that it's at that cross that you forgave us. As if you nailed our sin to the cross, we're forgiven by the great sacrifice that you made at Calvary. Lord, let it never become wallpaper to us. Lord, let us let it always stir our hearts to true, genuine, authentic worship. Lord, what happened on that hill of Golgotha? Let it change us. Let it move our hearts to worship, to prayer, to evangelism. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for Calvary. And we thank you, Lord, that you brought us to a place this morning in Scripture where we're going to study your message from the cross. Lord, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Paul has a Bible for you. Anybody need a Bible? Oh, we got one over here. Anybody else? <clears throat> Normally at Calvary Chapel, we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we're, we're studying through the book of Colossians. But we're taking a break for two weeks, and we're looking at, we're going, like I said, we're going to the mountaintop this morning. We're looking at what happened at Calvary. And there's so many different angles I was preparing this week, you know, to look at everything that took place there. But I, I chose to um, focus on the, the last, the, the seven things that Jesus said on the cross. So this morning, as I've said about three or four times now, we're going up to the mountain peak. The Christian life is like a journey up a mountain. As you're journeying up the trails up a mountain, you're going to stop by John chapter 14, and you're going to study about heaven. Then you're going to go up a little ways further, and you're going to stop by Matthew chapter 5 and, you, and chapter 6, and you're going to learn about the Sermon on the Mount. You're going to go to John chapter 16, and you're going to learn about the Holy Spirit being, being our paraclete, being the one that comes alongside. John 17, you're going to study about Jesus' high priestly prayer. Go back to I think it's John chapter 2, you're going to study the, the wedding at the Cana of Galilee. And all these are profound truths that are awesome to study in our journey up the mountain. But this morning, we're going up to the peak. We're going up to the peak of the mountain of Christianity. And we are going to study and look at what Christ said as he hung there dying on the cross. No words in scripture no words by Jesus Christ, no words by the apostles, no words by the, by, the, by the prophets are ever useless in vain or serve no purpose. Every single word spoken in Scripture, especially those of the Lord Jesus Christ, are full of wisdom. They're full of wisdom and truth. And they're worthy of our study as, as we bring it to life and we study it and we... We see what Christ is saying in these verses in light of what the rest of the New Testament says. They're very profound. So this morning, my message is titled, Christ's Message from the Cross. Seven statements, seven life-changing truths. But again, as I said in my introductory, this morning is part one. We'll look at the first four, and then on uh, Good Friday, we'll look at the last three and partake 
of communion. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this message. God, um, just speak to our hearts, Lord. Let us love you more. Let us trust you more. And Lord, let us understand the glorious truth of uh, your death at Calvary. In Jesus' name I pray, Father. Amen. All right, let me set the scene here. On a hill called Calvary, Golgotha, or place of the skull, our Savior, after he had been beaten, scourged, and ripped to pieces, most likely stripped of all of his clothing, was crucified, nailed to a tree, nailed to a cross. We know from the Gospel of John that John and Mary were close by, and we believe that the other disciples, according to Luke chapter 23, verse 49, that they possibly watched from a distance. What was happening there? What was, what was going on there in their minds as they were seeing this happen? And more importantly, what is God saying to us? It's, it's not what did these verses mean to us, but what is the intended meaning of the statements that Christ made? Now, I just want to stop here for a second, and I want you to think about the disciples. They had followed Jesus for three years. They set their hopes on him. Man, they were bewildered. They were in a state of shock. The one they had put their hopes in, the one that was going to bring in the kingdom, the one that they wrestled with, who's going to sit on the left and the right, is now being tortured by a Roman crucifixion. The Persians had, had started the arts of crucifying people in the third century before Christ, but the Romans had perfected it. So here's Mary and John standing very close, we believe, the disciples and the others in a far-off distance. And let's look at the first statement. The first statement that Jesus made on the cross is found in Luke 23, 34. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. What is happening here? What is happening on this hill, on the hillside of Calvary? Jesus is Look at it. He's praying for the soldiers. He's praying for the soldiers that had beat him to a bloody pulp. They forced him to carry his cross, and then they crucified him. He is praying for them. What's he praying for? He's praying for their salvation, because that's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is salvation. What are they doing? <clears throat> what are these Roman soldiers doing? They're acting in ignorance. I believe they're acting in ignorance. To them, it's just another day of the office. This is another day at the office. Another Jew, another rise, another uh, person has come up against the government, and they're just taking them out to Calvary. Little did they know that they were crucifying the Son of God. And Jesus is praying for them. But check this out. The Father answers the prayer. The Father answers the prayer. If you go over to Mark chapter 15, verse 39, Mark's gospel says, When the centurion who was standing right in front of them, saw the way he breathed his last breath, the centurion says this, truly this man was the son of God. So the, 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 his eyes were open. Truly this was the son of God. What is Christ saying in this statement to us this morning? What is he saying? What he is saying is this, this is the heart of Christianity. This is the heart of Christianity, the cross, where men and women Go to find forgiveness of sin. This is, this is where all my lying, my lusting, my adultery, 
all of my breaking of God's laws, this is where the price is paid. This is where I find my forgiveness. This is where the human soul finds forgiveness. We don't find forgiveness in religion. We don't find forgiveness in the church. We don't find forgiveness in a leader. We find it at Calvary, where Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. But also, in our Christian walk, it should go beyond that. It should go beyond that. Uh, We forgive because we've been forgiven. You know, Christ teaches us, the New Testament teaches us to forgive. Paul said in Ephesians 4.32, he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Can we honestly say that is us? Or do we need to grow in that area? Do we need to grow in that area? You know, I I hear people say sometimes, um, I've heard Christians say, I can never forgive him, or I can never forgive her. And I understand there are deep hurts and there's deep things that happen in life, but I'm so thankful my Savior didn't say that about me because I did a lot to offend him. I did a lot to break in his laws, and I'm so glad that the Savior forgave me at the cross. And you and I, my friend, as Christians, as the salt in the world, we take that forgiveness that we've experienced with the Lord through Calvary, and we need to extend it to others. We need to extend it to others. I'm not saying it's easy or hard. It can, it, can, it can be trying, but we got to come to a place where we obey the Scriptures and we forgive people. You know what that does? It shows them Christ in us. It shows them Christ in us. I, 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 I've had some serious things happen in my life with people, very difficult, that I held on to for years. But after I came to the cross and I became a disciple of Jesus Christ, he taught me how he forgave me. I said, I can forgive them. That's what this statement is saying to us. Father, forgive them. This is the heart of Christianity, that, that we forgive. The second statement. Second statement is found in Luke 23, 43. I love this one. Jesus says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now what's happening here is Christ is making this statement. There's two criminals. One's crucified on the left, one's crucified on the right. One mocks, one believes. The first criminal, he hurls abuse and mean statements at Christ. And he says to him, are you not the Christ? Then save yourself and us. The second criminal on the other side, he rebukes the first criminal. And he says in Luke 23, 40, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man, talking about Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, and then he says to him, that, that the uh, second criminal says to Jesus, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Christ makes this statement up on the screen to that second criminal. And he says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. First thing I want to point out about this, this, this scene at the cross is these two criminals represent all humanity. Because all humanity is guilty before God. They're guilty before God of breaking his laws and what we call being a sinner. We're all guilty. 
but also in their response to the gospel, we see all humanity too. Because either, either you believe or you don't believe. Either you accept or you reject. And we, so we see, even at the cross, the world, a picture of, of, of the world's response to the gospel is, is, is pictured in these two criminals. One believes, one rejects. And, and what is God saying? What is God saying in this verse? What is he saying to the criminal? What is the scripture saying to us when he says, truly I say to you today, you'll be in paradise? The first thing God is saying is this, heaven is a real place. Heaven is a real place. Truly I say to, say to you today, you will be with me in, he says it right there, paradise. The word paradise means a perfect place. A perfect place with no disease, no sickness, and no death. In John chapter 14, I love that passage. This is one of the first passages I memorized. Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. The Greek word for place in John chapter 14 is topos. It means a place marked off by boundaries. Heaven is a real place. Praise the Lord for the movies. I want to go see them, and I enjoy them. But I don't need the movies to tell me heaven's a real place. I got Christ's word. I got Christ's word. Praise the Lord for the movies. Let's go check them out. Make sure they line up with scripture. But we have the words of Christ. We have the promises of scripture that heaven is a real place. And he's telling this thief, today you will be in paradise. Second thing that... Um, this statement up on the screen that Jesus says, truly I say to you, truly I say to you, here it is, today. He says, truly I say to you, then they put the comma in there, I'm saying this to you, he says, today you will be in paradise. This means this, there's no such thing as soul sleep. Soul sleep does not exist. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 8 says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The moment we breathe our last breath and we close our eyes in this life, friend, you will wake up in glory. You will wake up on, on the streets of gold. You will see Christ. That's why Paul says in Corinthians that, that God has defeated death. That, oh, death, where is thy sting? Because, now, don't get me wrong. When I look at death and I think about it, it ain't an exciting thought. And I'm really not looking forward to it because I like life. But I do know that when I do come, when it do comes my when it does come to my appointed day, I don't fear what's on the other side. There's not this scary unknown. What's going to happen on the other side? I know what's going to happen when I step into eternity. I'm going to see my Savior face to face. I'm going to be on the streets of gold with with my family members that have gone before me that serve Him and that love Him. So that's what Christ says to us in Luke 23, 43. The heaven is a real place. And he says, today you will be in paradise. There is no such thing as soul sleep. Um, the third statement. The third statement is found in John chapter 19, verse 26. Uh, it says this. And when Jesus then saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, Behold your son. Then he said to the disciples, Behold your mother. I love this verse. 
I love this passage because we, we see Christ taking care of mom. We see Christ taking care of his mother that he loved. We see the emotion. We see the, the shepherding. We see him saying, you know what, I'm going to take care of my mom. You could kind of like say he was obeying the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment is honor your mother and father. And, he, and he's taking care of mom. But what is happening there? What is happening there at the cross? According to the Gospel of John, Mary is very close to the cross. Her and the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, are very close. What is happening there? Mary's in pain. Mary is in deep, deep pain. A sword is piercing her soul. And she's in deep agony as she sees her son that she loves being crucified, as well as you and I would be if we saw a relative, a child, going through what Jesus went through. It was not a pretty picture. It was not a pretty picture. Uh, scholars believe when, when they went down to Via Della Rosa back in those times, that as a person carried their cross to Calvary, they would put a sign. It says, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. And the reason they put that sign up there was to make a statement to all people. This is what will happen to you if you break the law. It was a very gruesome scene, and it was breaking her heart. Listen to what Simeon said, the prophet, in Luke chapter 2, whenever um, they went to dedicate Jesus at the temple. This is spoken in the very beginning, Luke 2, 34 and 35. And Simeon, a prophet at the temple, when, right after Christ was born, says Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a, here it is. He's speaking to Mary, his mother, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Mary sees her son, the son that she dearly loves, being crucified. And it's breaking her heart. But I want you to look at the verse. Look at what it says in John 19, 26. It says, woman, behold your son. He uses this word in verse 26, behold. He says, woman, behold your son. Have we heard that phrase before in the New Testament? What did John the Baptist say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He, he was telling Israel, behold this is Jesus, the Son of God. And now Jesus is saying, he's using that same word to his mother down on the ground where he says, woman, be, not just look at me or check it out or see it. He says, woman, behold your son. What is taking place in this statement? What is taking place between Jesus and Mary? I suspect a new relationship, a new relationship is forming between Mary and Jesus. For all these years, Jesus was her son that she loved and she cared for, and now he's becoming her Lord. So the relationship, Jesus is going from her son to being her Lord, to being her Lord. Do you know what the last recorded words in Scripture are of Mary or all church history? Do you know what they are? The very last words that we know that was spoken by Mary, there is no church history of words she spoke. We believe that she's after 
the New Testament, she settled in Ephesus with John the Apostle, and she stayed there until she died of old age, is what church history says. But the last recorded words of Mary is found in John chapter 2. They're at the wedding of the Cana of Galilee. And what, is her, what are her last words? Whatever, she, she tells the attendant, she says, whatever he says, do it. That's the last recorded words. That's some good advice from Mary. That's some very good advice from Mary. She tells the, 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 the attendants, whatever Jesus says, you do it. That's her last recorded words. And now we have here at the cross, I believe, she's, becoming, she's going from mother to disciple. Beautiful. What is God saying? What, what, what is God saying to us in this text where he says, woman, behold your son. And, and then he also, don't, don't also realize in verse 27, then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. He, he's, he's tasking his number one disciple, the disciple whom he loved. Hey, you take care of mom. You, you take care of mom. But what is God saying? The picture here from uh, Christ to Mary, what is God saying to us? He's saying in this passage that God is compassionate. Our God is compassionate. Our God is loving, and our God is caring. And he's committing his closest disciple to the care of his mother. We need to remember that. God is holy. Yes. He is righteous. He is just. He is infinite, eternal, omniscient, omnipresent. He is all those things. He is the great I am. He's the almighty God. The angels surround the throne and they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But we need to remember in this world where we have trials and difficulties and things don't always go our way, that we need to remember this, that God, at the same time of all those, he is a compassionate God. He is a loving God and he is a caring God. And if you're going through a difficult trial, you're going through a difficult situation, he knows where you're at. And he desires to come along and help you and hold you in the palm of his hand, just like he did Mary. There's nothing supernatural about Mary. She's a human being just like you and me. She's not to be prayed to. She's not uh, spiritual. She's, she's none of that. She's a human being just like us. And he was taking care of her. And God does the same thing for you and me. He takes care of us. We can trust him with our life. We can trust him uh, with, our, with our finances. We can trust him with our family. We can trust him when we go through difficult times and difficult situations. He's an omniscient, almighty, all-knowing God. You can rest in him. You can trust in him. I love how he's providing for Mary here. Philippians 4.19. Oh, there it is, right over there. It says, where God guides, God provides. And God was providing for his mother. Jesus was, 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 was providing for his mother. Philippians 4.19, And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He was taking care of her needs. He'll take care of your needs. Bach, he's going to see you through college, okay? He's going he's gonna, he's gonna to take you all the way through. He's going to carry you. You can trust him. He'll take us through when, when we're dealing with our, our children, when we're dealing with family members, when we're dealing with difficult situations. All I can say in those moments of difficulty is, God, I trust in you. I trust in you. And that's what you've got to say. That's a statement of faith. That's a statement of faith. 
that, Lord, I'm going to trust in you. I'm not going to put my eyes to the person on my left or the right or my circumstance or my situation. I'm going to look to you. Amen? That was one, two, three. Let's look at number four. Number four. This is a lengthy one. Lots of um, theological implications here. Lots of theological, lots of biblical truth. The fourth statement is found in Matthew 27, 46. Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was the reason he came. This was the reason that was chosen before the foundation of the world. This was his plan to come and make a way for us to be forgiven of our sin, which according to 1 John 3, 4 is breaking God's law. What's happening there? What is happening there on the mountaintop of Calvary? As Jesus is making this statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is expressing his feelings of abandonment as the Father places on him, not beside him, not to the left or not to the right or not to the foot, but places on him the sin of the world. Jesus is experiencing, as he's making the statement, I believe Jesus is experiencing the full and complete wrath of God for every sin ever committed. He, he's making a way. All Imagine Christ on the cross in this big funnel coming down from the heavens and, come, and coming down to one point. All the sins of the world of every human being was being poured out on Christ who knew no sin. This is Jesus who welcomed the little children. This is Jesus who raised the Lazarus from the dead. This is Jesus who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. But now he's being punished. The sin of the world is being laid on him. 1 John 2.2 says, He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. All the sin of the world was placed on Christ. That doesn't mean all sinners is forgiven. The, 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 the individual human being has a response. They must appropriate that forgiveness by repentance and faith and, and putting their trust in Christ. Then it gets applied to their account. But everything, everything was laid on him. We call this a divine substitution. Divine substitution. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. One of my favorite verses. You know, I, I see the Father reaching down when I got saved. He took my dirty garments of sin and he placed it on Christ at the cross. He takes Jesus' righteous garment and places it on me. Forgiven. I'm free. I'm free to walk in the Holy Spirit. I'm free to walk in grace. I've been, I've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. 
if you're a believer in Christ. You've been forgiven of everything. Past, present, future. Complete righteousness. That word righteousness, big theological word people spend a lot of time studying. But that word righteousness simply means, ready for this, a right standing with God. You're, You're right before the Lord. You're right before the Lord because Jesus died on the cross. I'm going to give you you one to chew on. Whose plan was it to crucify Jesus? I was watching TV yesterday, and I came across National Geographic. They got a show starting this week. I think it starts like Thursday or Friday or Saturday. It says, who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? There'll be a lot of talk in social media, TV, but who was behind the crucifixion? Who put it together? If you listen to the TV, listen to the social media, they, they're going to say, well, you see, the Jews, the Jewish people crucified him. Eh, not true. Uh, fake news. Some people will say, the, uh, the, the, the Romans. Well, Jesus was crucified. It was the Roman plan to crucify Jesus. Eh, fake news. Who was behind the plan of Calvary? Isaiah 53.10 says this, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. You ready for this, folks? It was the Father's plan. It was the Father's plan from all eternity. It was the Father's plan. Peter confirms this in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Where he says, he says to the, uh, in his sermon in Acts 2.23, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Calvary was not plan B or C or D, E or F. It was plan A from the very beginning. It was plan A. It was the Father who crushed the son at Calvary. That's the love of God. That's the love of God. God says, you know what? I'm going to step down because I am the sinless lamb of Jesus. That is, I will, the sinless lamb of God, the second member of the Trinity, will leave the Father's side, come into this world, born, born of a virgin, lived a sinless perfect, sinless, perfect life, suffered and died on Calvary to be the ultimate sacrifice that will be able to forgive all who come to me in faith. It was the Father's plan. It was the Father's plan. What does Matthew 27, 46 say to us this morning? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It teaches us this, that God takes sin very serious. God takes sin very, very serious. Salvation is a free gift that you cannot earn by works. It's a free gift he gives you. It's free to us, but it's not, it was not free to the Father. It cost him his son. Jesus paid the ultimate price. Every sin was laid upon him. Now what I want to do is I want to take you to Romans chapter 9, verses 22 through 23. Um, one of the most challenging passages in all of Scripture for theologians. Romans chapter 9, verse 22 through 23. 
You should be able to follow me up on the screen. says this. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Wow. There is a lot there. But basically, in a nutshell, what verse 22 is saying is this, is that you and I, before we came to Christ, we were objects of wrath. That's what it's saying. Before, before a person comes to Christ, they're objects of wrath. Why? Because they've sinned against God. They've broken his laws, and their sins are not forgiven. And all sin will be accounted for on Judgment Day. There's two places that sin will be accounted for, either in hell or at Calvary. That's, 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 where, they, that's where they are. And, and, and Romans 9.22 says, You and I were vessels of wrath prepared for destruction because our rebellion, our decision to rebel against God and to break his commandments. But look at verse 23. He says, And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Now that you've come to Christ, now that you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, my friend, you're no longer an object of wrath. You're no longer an object of wrath. According to verse 23, because your faith is in Christ Jesus, you and I are now objects of, look at it, of God's riches, God's glory, and God's mercy because of the sacrifice that Christ made. Why are we objects of riches and glory and mercy? Because Jesus paid the price for our sin at Calvary. He took on the punishment. My friend, this is the mountaintop. This is the mountaintop of Christianity where the sinner comes to Calvary, acknowledges what took place there as, as, the, as paying the price for his sins. He, he understands he's a sinner. He's broke God's law. And he repents and he turns from the old life and he turns to Christ. And God removes that bullseye. He removes that bullseye. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you see how important Calvary is? Do you see how important Calvary is? Man's greatest need in this life is not self-esteem. It's not how we can make our life better. It's how we can figure out how to get, be forgiven. How we can how, how to find salvation. Because when we leave this life, we're going to be gone for a long time. And there's nothing more important than a person's eternal salvation. Another way to find and to see the beauty of Calvary and, and, and the, the beauty of the good news, you know, the gospel is called what? Good news. Why is it called good news? It's because there's bad news. There's bad news. And the bad news is that we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. 
and we look at God's moral law, we examine ourselves, we see ourselves as guilty, and then we go to Calvary, and he forgives us of everything because of his, his sacrifice he made for Calvary. As I said in the beginning of my sermon, every single thing in the Bible, every, every message, every teaching you find in the scriptures as you go up this mountain journey called Christianity, there's awesome biblical truth in every passage. Jesus fed the 5,000. He spoke to the multitudes and said some of the most profound, inspirational, truthful statements ever made. But I believe what took place on Good Friday and then what took place on early that Sunday morning is the mountaintop of Christianity. If you go into, into the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27 or 28, I'm not sure which one, but it says that the women were going there early in the morning, and it says that they were afraid. They were in a state of shock. What, what do you think that Saturday was like? Jesus died on the cross. They, they laid him in the sepulcher and sealed the tomb. What do you think that Saturday was like? Their hopes were dashed. The disciples on Good Friday did not understand what you and I were talking about. Their hopes were dashed. They were crushed. It wasn't until after the resurrection of Jesus that the light bulb went off. Bing! And they saw this glorious good news that Christ forgives. Amen? Uh, we've looked at these first four statements. Uh, this coming Friday, we'll look at the final three statements. What were those final three statements? The number, number five was, I am thirsty. I am thirsty. You know, he was offered drink twice at Calvary. Did you know that? He, he was offered drink right before they crucified him, and then they offered him drink again right at the end. We'll talk about what happened in those two, um, those two situations. One had alcohol, one didn't. What's up with this gall and this vinegar and this sour wine? We'll talk about some of that stuff Friday night. The next one, it is finished. It is finished. We're going to talk about how the mission was complete. The mission was complete. The sacrifice had been made. A way for you and I to be free, to be forgiven, to have clean hearts. We'll talk about that Friday. And then I love the final statement. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Let me just say something real quick. Jesus' final statement on the cross, Father, you're into your hands, commit my spirit. I'm going to go somewhere in this area uh, Friday night. It was this, God is faithful. God, God is faithful, and we can trust him, just like Jesus did. We can trust him, and then we'll close the evening out with communion. I, I just, closing thoughts. Man, let these truths fuel your passion for the Lord. Let these tr biblical truths ignite your passion to serve Christ. You know, don't settle for long-faced religion and tradition, but man, but go to the Bible. Go to the Bible and let these things sink deep and let it transform your life. Amen? If you're not sure whether you're a Christian or not, it's simple. What did, the thieves, what did the thieves say to Jesus on the cross? Remember me in your kingdom. The New Testament expands on it. Repent and believe. Turn from the old life. Put your trust in Christ. He sends his Holy Spirit. 
and you have this blessed journey called Christianity. And there's no greater joy. There's no greater fulfillment. There's no greater peace of mind. There's just no greater life than living for Christ and living out the Christian faith. Amen? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Father, for your sermon, your message, your words from Calvary. And Father, as we've looked at these first four, Father, we thank you that heaven is a real place. We thank you, Lord, that, that to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. God, we, we thank you that you're a, a compassionate and a caring and a loving heavenly Father who cares for your children. And you care for every little detail. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that you are the propitiation. You are the sacrifice that enables us to stand here today with no guilt, no condemnation, but to have hearts that are white, that are pure as snow by your sacrifice. Lord, we love you, and we thank you, Lord. Father, I pray as we enter it now into this, uh, what we call, some people call the Holy Week, the, the week of the Passion. Lord, I pray that we'll all spend time in God's Word and reflect on what happened. And Lord, uh, prepare our hearts for Friday night. Give us a desire, Lord. Man, I want to hear what they have to say about those last three statements. And Lord, help us to just let it fuel our passion as we serve you. In Jesus' name we pray, Lord God. Amen.